there is a peaceful quietness that has descended on the Junction Triangle. As I visit this West End Toronto neighborhood, now in the process of gentrification, far cry from when I was there in the spring of 2003, when a little girl had disappeared one afternoon in May from what was then a working class neighborhood. 10-year-old Holly Jones, who vanished almost 24 hours ago. Holly described by friends as a beautiful little girl full of life. I'm Austin Delaney, and for 30 years I have covered crime and the court cases that followed for CTV Toronto. She is the subject of a province-wide search, possibly the victim of foul play, possibly lured off the streets near her home. Holly was walking with a friend home from school, but did not make it home herself. Alarm bells were ringing everywhere. Nothing made sense. This was totally out of character. A day later, a massive police search, and for only the second time in Toronto police history, an Amber Alert was issued. The city was turned upside down. Her neighborhood flooded with police. She had simply vanished without a trace. 18 years after her disappearance, I returned to the neighborhood with CP24's crime analyst, Steve Ryan, a former homicide investigator with Toronto Police. We meet at the crime scene near a memorial for Holly, just steps from where she was kidnapped. Steve, when you, when you look at that picture in the parquette, uh, what comes to mind? Utter heartbreak. Uh, you look at the beautiful, happy child Holly was, and to know that her life came to such a tragic end, um, it, it's, it's just heartbreaking. I would say for not only all the investigators involved, of course, but I mean the family, the community, the city, everybody was affected by this, by this murder. How did it affect you? A lot. Um, I have a tough time even to this day driving past Bloor Street. We have walked a block north of Bloor Street to a parquet where the memorial sits paying tribute to the great schooler who fell victim to a sexual predator living amongst the hard-working families in this neighborhood. There is a large black and white framed portrait of a grinning Holly. Her hair draped over her shoulders. She smiles at the camera resting her chin on her hand. It is mounted on the fence looking over tattered stuffed animals placed there long ago. A basketball that has seen better days and wooden butterflies attached to the fence, bearing well wishes from her neighbors and friends. There are people still today that come to see it, right? And the thing for me is, it's a reminder to all the children to be careful. Next door to the parquet, Joni Thomas recognizes Steve Ryan from long ago. You were one of the detectives that interviewed us all, weren't you? I was. She is sitting on her porch recalling that it was then Detective Ryan who knocked on her door nearly two decades ago. Now, you were somebody who I interviewed 18 years ago with regards to this investigation. Can you believe it's been 18 years since I Holly can't. I cannot. Yeah. Can, can you describe for me how you felt, first off, talking with me, a, de a detective, about a case like this, and just how the neighborhood felt in general? We were terrified because, you know, we didn't know what was really going. We knew there was a little girl missing, but never knew the extent of it. Yeah. And what happened when the details started to come out with regards to... It was scary. It was really scary. 
I'm raised in this neighborhood. I've been here 54 years. So for something like that to happen, it was like, it was incredible. It was sad. Like we cried our tears. My son knew her because they went to the same school at St. Luigi together. And there was a, a youth club over there, which she went to, my son went to and whatever. And at that time I had a younger daughter who I was so frightened for, like, you know, and I tried to shield her from a lot of it. And, and that, so it was really scary for the neighborhood. Back then, police had descended on the neighborhood, grasping at straws, looking for any kind of clue that would bring Holly safe return. And that meant talking to everyone in the neighborhood. So Joni remembers you from you coming out and questioning. What, what were you asking? Yeah, I, I don't remember Joni, but I remember the questions that were asked. And the, the questions we were asking her, somewhat general, but specific as well. And, and what I mean by that is, first off, we had a missing girl that we knew her family wasn't responsible for abducting her. And everybody was a suspect. So we asked questions like, did you see Holly Jones? Did you know Holly Jones? What do you think happened to Holly Jones? Just to get an idea. And if you or to think of somebody who may be capable of this, if you know somebody, who would that be? And that may be a shot in the dark, but it's a start. Because when you have a case where you've got nothing, when somebody just vanishes, you need to start with something. So we were just trying to get any names we could possibly get, and that was one of the questions we asked. Who do you think could have done that? And had they said Ronald McDonald, you've got to go clear that person, because every name that comes up, you have to clear. Did Briere's name come up? No. Michael Breer's name never came up. Why do you think that is? He was new to the neighborhood, perhaps. He was a loner, kept to himself. So there was no need for anybody in this neighborhood to know who he was. He had no kids, so there would be no relationship with other parents. So he was, uh, he was unknown um, when this investigation started. Michael Breer lived on Bloor Street West in an apartment, in a semi-detached rental unit that had seen better days. It is just around the corner from where Holly was taken seemingly without any witnesses. So this is First Avenue. This is where she's actually abducted. This is where she was abducted. You know, I often wondered, as many hours as I spent on the street, these light poles or these trees were able to talk and tell us exactly what happened in those last few minutes of her life. But this is a street that uh, she was abducted on. She was walking south on the street, as we're doing right now, from her, her girlfriend's place. She spent time there after school, said goodbye to her girlfriend, was on her way home. Little did she know that uh, Breer had consumed a lot of alcohol that afternoon, watched child pornography, and had decided that he was going to go act out a long-time fantasy of his, which was to abduct and sexually assault a young girl. And he was going to pick the first girl that he saw. So if it wasn't Holly, it would have been somebody else. And this was the first time Holly had ever gone home from school by herself? Yeah. First day she ever walked home from school by herself. Yeah, first day. And you think, busy neighborhood, she just lives down the street, what could go wrong? Everything went wrong for Holly Jones that afternoon. Michael Briere was a 35-year-old software developer who lived an unassuming life. He had little contact with his neighbors and fewer friends. 
But for now, he held a secret the police were trying to unravel. Where was Holly Jones? Toronto police threw everything they had at the investigation. Time was of the essence if Holly was to be reunited with her family. We're all very concerned for Holly's safety. We've had people from the community just come up and offer their support. We're doing everything we can. We're not leaving any stone unturned to try and locate uh, this 10-year-old girl. The entire city was on edge. There was a stranger on the loose who had abducted a little girl. Natasha Robinson lived just across the train tracks that sliced through the neighborhood and worried at the time whose child would be next. I remember the panic that everyone around us felt at the time and the fear. I had a child that was the same age as Holly and um, in fact they were the same age so you know all the parents at Howard Park uh, School where my son went were, were frightened, we were all really scared. The entire city was in lockdown. What we found was that there were more attempted abductions reported. They never were proven to be um, confirmed but people were afraid. The kids were kept inside, kids were telling their parents that that cars looked at them suspiciously, people looked at them suspiciously. So parents became guardians, of course, calling in these reported abductions, and everybody in the city became a detective. Everybody had somebody in mind who they thought could have done this, and that's what we were dealing with, which is a good thing in an investigation. As I said before, where you have a needle in a haystack, you need the hay. So it doesn't matter if it's good or bad, it's something to work with, and that's what we found was going on. Yeah, actually, I was one of those parents, and yeah, we did suspect everyone because at, at a certain point there was a theory that was floated that it was somebody in and around the area. I mean, maybe this was something the police was saying, I'm, I'm not sure, but I do remember people wondering, well, wait a minute, like it could be anyone around. So yeah, no, I was, definitely. To the point where one day my son didn't come home from school, which he never did, and I ended up calling the police, and they, 10 cars showed up at my house, and there was the potential that perhaps something had happened to him. Two hours later, we found him, thank God, he was at a friend's house, but yeah, I mean, it really changed my attitude towards everything. You automatically go to the worst after something like this happens, right? Of course. It's every parent's worst nightmare. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I don't know how her parents survived. The detectives would later learn from the killer's confession just how random his young victim was. So, Breer, according to Breer's own uh, admission, he came out of his house, he walked north on Perth Avenue here. He saw Holly Jones walking south. He spun around, grabbed her by the back of her neck, and guided her all the way back to his apartment, saying to her, if you scream, I will kill you. She didn't scream. Oddly enough, once this uh, arrest was made and the investigation was continuing to put the pieces together, people actually saw them together. And they thought it was a father or an older brother chastising a young kid, their sister or daughter. And they said that because of the sheer terror that was on her face and that's what they remembered I saw her with a guy and they thought that she's being chastised for something she'd done yeah how sad that is the seasoned former investigator tells me 
These are the hardest crimes to solve. This is Stranger on Stranger. This was one of those cases where most abductions are either familial or they're not abductions. They're mistakes. Sometimes they, people make them up for certain reasons. Child abductions are so rare. So when we confirmed that this was an actual stranger on stranger abduction, it shocked um, the investigators. It shocked the city, I would say, because there was no suspect. So everybody was a suspect. You and I were suspects. And I found people would be kind of looking at each other who is the monster because we had no idea who it was. The day after the disappearance, always happy she's never sad don't make her sad holly's mother maria made a desperate plea for the safe return of her daughter the appeal she made hoping holly might see her mother on television to let her daughter know everyone was doing their best to find her little did maria jones know that day it was already too late holly honey our hearts are out to you baby if you can hear me you know how much we love you. I feel you inside of me and I'm trying to find you. I'm doing everything. Everybody's working very hard. And whoever has her, I beg you, I beg you with all my heart that you keep her and bring her home to her mother and father. You keep her safe, I beg you. She hasn't ever hurted anyone in her life. She's a happy girl. I beg you not to hurt her. Bring her home to us. Ryan says the plea was all for naught. Holly was abducted right under the noses of the entire neighborhood in broad daylight and murdered the same day, shortly after her killer forced the 10-year-old into his apartment. So this is the alleyway here. Yep. Um, just by Bloor Street. And what happens here? Well, he still got her by the neck, and he's marching her into this alleyway, which runs just like it's east off of Perth here. It is a typical downtown alley, wide enough to squeeze a car through dilapidated garages back onto it, and the walls are tagged and painted with graffiti. If you look carefully, though, you will see there is a narrow space leading to Bloor Street between two homes and Briere's front door. And when he gets to his apartment, quick right turn, he goes in between his house and the house beside it, and then up the front stairs, and that's the last time Holly ever really, uh, she had her last breath walking up those stairs. Which one's his? I believe it is right here. Yeah, I think this is it. It's a nondescript place, isn't it? Looks like every other place? It looks like every other place. Uh, you, yeah, you would never have... Imagine what went on inside of that place. Not much time would pass before investigators would be inside that apartment. By then, a crime scene. There was a mirror, a full-length mirror on Breer's, I believe it was on his front door or the wall, one or the other. But when I saw that, my, my heart sank because I thought to myself, this is the last time that this child saw herself her own reflection was in that mirror as she was being led in to be sexually assaulted and, 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 and murdered. That tear on, terror on her face must have just been unbelievable and the last person she saw before she died was that monster. That's what came to my mind when I saw that, that, that mirror on the wall. Did she fight back at this point? She did. She did. She did fight back. 
At one point, he thought, he being Greer, thought that she was dead. Uh, he put her in his fridge, and he heard a boom, 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 and knocking. It was her fighting to get out. So he took her out, and he strangled her, and then he dismembered her. The very same day, Holly's mom pleaded for her daughter's safe return. Police would gather the media to make this announcement. I have a sad notification that the search for Holly Jones is now a search for a killer. Body parts in a gym bag had been found along the shoreline of Wards Island near the Eastern Gap. We take a water taxi across the Toronto Harbour, heading for Wards Island, retracing the route the former detective took the day those remains were discovered. On this day, the water is choppy as we approach the beach facing Toronto's majestic skyline across the harbour. On that spot, some of her remains washed up onto the beach and it was found by a couple who are out for a walk in the morning with their dog. The taxi drops us off at the pier. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. Stay safe, okay? So, this is Ward's Island. This is Ward's Island. It's the first time I have been back here since that night 18 years ago. We walk across the pier and head towards the beach, a stone's throw from where we were dropped off. And it's a nice beach, isn't it? It's a beautiful beach. It's a beautiful beach. It's a beautiful area up on, for me up until that, that day when her remains washed up here on the bed. And you can imagine those poor people that came across that bag and opened it up and found body remains inside of that bag. My good God. And that couple uh, found it. They live on the island? Or? Yes. And they were just out for a walk? Just out for a walk. That was it. And like I said, the, 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 the man that uh, found it was very cooperative, but he had to put up with my, my I would say, two-hour interrogation of him because we had nothing else. I, now I have this man who finds these kids' remains in a bag. So I went at him pretty hard, but uh, obviously he did not do it, and he was never a suspect, but I just threw that out there because we had nothing. We had nothing. Michael Briere was not on the detective's radar yet. All police had now was the man who discovered the remains. And Ryan says he had to ask some tough questions. And oftentimes with killers, you'll, they'll never tell you they did it until you ask them. And that's been proven where people have been asked later on, well, why didn't you say you did it? You never asked me. So you just ask them, did you kill Holly Jones? Did you kill that little girl? If you don't ask, you won't get an answer. So he must have been frightened. Oh, he was frightened, he was pissed, he was all kinds of things, of course. Oh yeah, can you imagine just finding that discovery and then having to deal with me hours later saying, did you do this? Yeah, it was awful for him, I'm sure. Police divers were back in the water just west of Ontario Place today as the search continued for more remains of Holly Jones. Yesterday, severed body parts were found in the water at this location. These shots from the CFTO news chopper show the divers being pulled underwater on sleds, looking for what's believed to be a bag containing more body parts. The difficulty for the detectives early in this investigation was figuring out how the body parts got to the island. I'm here now and I think back to all of that went on. It's, it's just craziness. And at that time, you've got no clue that it's Pierre because all you've got is some, some body parts. That's right. We've got body parts that were washed up here on the island, body parts that were located in the lake by Ontario Place, and that's all we had.
Did Holly's killer take the remains on the island ferry to dispose of her, or possibly was he a resident of Ward's Island's tight-knit community? At this point, investigators had no idea. Everybody was a suspect, so you're walking around on this island. Even later on that evening, I believe it was, or the next day, I was detailed back here in the nighttime with a couple of other investigators. And we walked through here doing a canvas, and it, it, it's, such a, it's such a beautiful place, all these pretty homes, and everybody was peering out of the windows because nobody knew who the suspect was and was the suspect here on this island. Was he watching us? We didn't know. We knocked on every door doing a canvas and everybody except that couple that found that the remains saw nothing. And of course they saw nothing because the body came from the north and, and, and you know, washed south. Ryan tells me the day of the gruesome discovery on the beach was the day the island lost some of its innocence for the hardened police investigator. It just gives this whole island a different feel for me. When I was a kid, my God, I would spend every weekend here with my parents. Every other picture in my parents' rec room is of me on Center Island. And this had a place for me as a kid that was safe. It was like home. And it's different now. This is the first time I've actually stepped foot on this island in 18 years. It's different. Yeah, I see it as a different place now. Yeah. That's a shame too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. That's the price of, uh, you know, doing that type of work. You do it because it's, it's public service and it's, it's good work, but there's a price to pay for it, for sure. And what that does is you lose your naivety. People get off of this ferry, walk around here with their children. It's a beautiful spot. You can see the skyline. I know it as a different place, and that's, that's the price of doing this type of work. But I don't regret doing that work, but it does come with a cost. For the retired cop, Holly's washed-up remains on the yellow beach sand forever etched in his mind. That beach just behind a break wall of giant rocks, separating the public beach from the island pathway and its homes. So let's go to the spot here. Climbing over rocks. Be careful. Boy, not, a lot of this is, remains the same way as it was 18 years ago, oddly enough, when I'm back here. I remember, except for the lawn chairs, of course, but uh, everything else all looks the same. So this is the first time that you guys know for sure that Holly's dead. This is confirmation that uh, she, had been, she had been killed. Yeah. But who had killed Holly Jones? And how did her body parts get towards Ireland? The body's found here, but it's not dumped here. How does it get here? Water currents. Her parts were found, her remains were found over by center, so, excuse me, over by Ontario Place. You can see the big ball. That's where one bag surfaced and the other one made its way here. And the lead investigators at the time contacted uh, marine specialists who did the uh, currents and the winds. And it would have just, luckily, thankfully, it, it floated from the mainland over here to the island. In a matter of days. In a matter of days, in a matter of days. And that could have gone out to the lake and who knows what would happen at that point, but it didn't, it got caught up here in the beach. So that's a break for you, that it, because just around the corner is, is the lake. That's right. And I'm sure, I, I wouldn't, you know, never want to speak for, for Breer, but that was his thought. Dump it in the lake, it's going out in the middle. He never thought, I would imagine, that it would have got caught up here on the island. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that he was successful and the body parts went out to the lake. How would you have solved this crime? We wouldn't, because it would have been a DNA case. You wouldn't have solved it. You needed that DNA. It was that DNA evidence that tied him to her. Without that DNA, we would never have solved this. And he just panicked. He panicked. Absolutely panicked. He did the wrong thing that one would do if you were to try to get rid of or hide of body parts, and that is throw them in water. That's where he made his mistake. It sounds like they all panic. Well, they do because it's it, well, it's self. It's 
they are so self-centered. Everything is about them. And once the deed is done, now it's, again, self-preservation. What do I do? What do I do now? How do I get rid of this evidence? I'll take it on the subway with all the regular, normal-day people. That is exactly what Briere did. He headed to the subway and boarded a train carrying in his hands the evidence police needed to catch Holly's killer. The child's dismembered body parts covered with her killer's calling card, his DNA. The Bloor line runs right past Briere's home. He would take the train that day to Young Street and transfer south and get as close to the lake as he could and toss the body parts into the water. So we learned from him that he disposed of some of her body parts onto Ward's Island by taking the subway. He took the subway downtown, went over, I believe, to the uh, north side, the land side, and released her parts in the lake, thinking that they were going to float out into the lake, and they wound up washing up onto uh, Ward's Island. The police would later find surveillance video of Briere riding the trains not once, but twice, holding bags. What I saw on the video was uh, Breer sitting in a seat similar to this with two, a bag on the seat, and I knew what was in that bag. Obviously the people in the subway did not know, but there was evidence in that bag. There was evidence coming out of that bag. And I remember thinking to myself as well, the subway was jam-packed with people, people with different stories of the day. Maybe somebody got a promotion, somebody got a new car, sold their house, bought a new puppy, killed a young girl and dismembered her body. It's, it's To watch it, to see him going about his everyday regular routine and other people going about their routines as well, but the routines are so different. They came from so many, so many different places. His, Briere, came from hell, the devil. These other people, everyday life, but they had no idea what was on that subway car with them. Please stand clear the We leave the subway now and go back to Holly's neighborhood to talk about how the investigators narrowed in on her killer, a stranger to the little girl and her family. So let's go down to Bloor Street where the suspect lived. Okay. A stranger's DNA had been found on Holly's remains, but there was no DNA match in the system or a suspect. We are now on Bloor Street, close to where Holly was snatched, close to Briere's home. I'm going to go a little bit up the street here. You told me a story that you were here with the homicide detectives talking, and Briere's looking at you. Yeah. Yeah, we're right here on the corner of Perth and Bloor Street, just on the uh, south side of the street. Briere's house is on the north side, and we later learned the very first few hours that we put this uh, task force together that we were standing on this corner. And we learned that Breer was watching us. Why was he watching us? Because some of her remains he had put in the garbage. And it was garbage then. And he was waiting for the garbage truck to come along and get rid of those remains before we found them. So we learned a lot of lessons after that case. And the one thing I would, I would have done had I been in charge of an investigation like this, after learning what we learned, you freeze all the garbage. No garbage gets thrown out and you basically freeze an entire neighborhood. You may catch some flack for it down the road in court, or, or you know, you gotta be careful of people's rights under the charter, but we can't stand here and watch evidence disappear. 
In the end, it would be Briere invoking his Charter of Rights that ultimately made him a suspect in Holly's murder. Investigators needed a match to the DNA sample left on Holly's remains, but Briere wasn't about to play along. His freedom was at stake. Once we got DNA, um, we had something to work with. It was a stranger's DNA. Now we need to put a male suspect to that DNA. Controversial um, idea. We came up with a controversial idea, I should say, uh, which, was, which was to go basically in a six-block neighborhood of where Holly lived and get consent DNA samples from people only for that case. A quick swab with a Q-tip inside the cheek to clear all the males in that six-block radius of Holly's home. But no one was obliged to give a sample. Civil Liberties people were concerned about what was going on. But the bottom line is we had a little girl that was brutally murdered and sexually assaulted. We had DNA. We didn't have a name. So we had the proverbial needle in a haystack. We just needed to get all that hay that was around the, the needle. And it was done one by one, asking each man to give up a consent sample of DNA. Officers armed with DNA kits hit the streets and began knocking on doors. But not before a crucial meeting with senior investigators, whose message would resonate loud and clear with two beat cops eager to help find the child killer. So just before all of those DNA teams went out to swab the entire neighborhoods. They were briefed by the investigative team and they were told not only to ask for a DNA sample, make sure it's all done with regards to the document that's being presented, but also use your observation skills. Look beyond the person because we knew that on Holly's remains was green carpet fibers, which suggested that there may be a green carpet in the crime scene. We also knew that there may be weights either in the crime scene or the suspect was in shape because weights were used to weigh some of her body parts down in the lake, which it never worked. And we knew because of the manner in which her body was so brutally dismembered that it would have been a complete mess. Use your smell. See, so whoever would try to clean that scene up would think that some, something strong like a bleach is going to work. It doesn't because blood never goes away, but the common person would think that. So these officers, two of them, fantastic work by them, went to 1442, knocked on the door, spoke with Breer, asked him for that DNA sample, presented him with that document, and he refused. That's strike one. That's strike one. And anybody's entitled to refuse, of course you are. But in an investigation like this, we have to clear you another way. It doesn't matter who you are. You can't just leave a name out there. But what raised interest in Breer at the time, not only that he refused, that they saw a green carpet behind him. Strike two. Strike two. They saw weights. Strike three. And they said it smelled like the cleanest place they had ever encountered. They could smell the bleach from the outside of his house. Strike three. Surveillance team was put on, on him, I would say within an hour or two after that. Now investigators have a person of interest. A man who lives within striking distance of the abduction scene. And they need to get his DNA to either clear Briere or arrest him. So your surveillance team's got eyes on 1442. They're waiting for him to come out. What happens when he does? That's right. He came out early in the morning. I believe he was on his way to work, and he'd been surveilled around the clock because if this was the guy, he wasn't getting out of our sight. Briere walks nonchalantly along Bloor Street, heading to the subway, on his way to work, sipping a can of pop. 
he was just going about his every day, normal day to him, having a soda in the morning. Thankfully, he discarded the uh, soda can, and we were able to seize it. And that, that soda can is the key to, the, to solving that case. The soda can was the key, literally was the key. What happens in a DNA case is once we get the hit, that gives the police reasonable and probable grounds to believe he's the killer. Briere had left his DNA on the lip of the can of pop he had been sipping. There would be a match with the DNA found on Holly Jones. A eureka moment for the investigators who had been working tirelessly to find Holly's killer. Take us behind the scenes here. When you get that hit, that Coke can, and suddenly it's like, that's the same DNA, his DNA, DNA is the same DNA we found on Holly Jones. What's that like in your office? Again, the needle in the haystack, it is just the most euphoric time and I would say the saddest time as well because it happened, the murder happened, and you investigate it. Now when you find somebody, as crazy as it sounds, it's now real. This is not just an investigation where you're just chasing ghosts. You've got somebody now. This actually happened. This guy, we believe, actually killed her. So euphoria and heartbreak. Six weeks after Holly was taken against her will, sexually assaulted, strangled, and her body dismembered, this announcement from the police chief. Michael Briere had been arrested for the first-degree murder of Holly Jones. We cannot return her to her family, nor can we account for a crime beyond comprehension. But hopefully, this arrest will bring some closure to Holly's family, friends, and the community as a whole. Holly's mother, Maria Jones, emerged in tears after learning of the arrest. All she said was, we're glad he's gone. Just about everyone in Holly's West End neighborhood has seen the photo by now. He looks like he's got very like cold, evil eyes. He looks like a normal guy, but I'm not sure you never know when you don't know a person. A collective sigh of relief could be felt rippling through the city. Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. I was thrilled when I heard the news and I told my husband to uh, come and, you know, hear the announcement when it occurred. Briere would go on to plead guilty to first-degree murder. He just confessed. He confessed, and he gave a lot of helpful, what he thought were helpful, tips. I recall him saying to the officers, had she screamed, I would have let her go. Parents tell parents to tell their kids if they're abducted, scream, because I would have let her go. And that makes sense. Imagine him walking south on Perth with her. Had she said, help me, this is not my dad, he's letting her go. But he also knew that once he got her to his place, he had to kill her because she's a witness and she lived just across the street. So he knew he was going to kill her. He knew. He knew he was going to kill her. He, when he left his apartment, his whole goal was to find a young child, sexually assault them, and then kill them. He knew that. That was the plan. He was automatically sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 25 years. But before sentencing, the 35-year-old addressed the court and Holly's broken-hearted family. This is a portion of what Briere read in court today. The crime which I am guilty of is simply the worst kind of crime a person can commit. What I did was absolutely wrong. It was done out of selfishness. It was the act of a coward. I accept the sentence which you are about to give me. 
No one has ever stood in front of you who has been more deserving of such a sentence. I stand by my words when I told the police, a man who commits this type of crime, you put him away. You put him away for good. I take no pride in what I have done. The truth is that I am ashamed beyond belief. I regret everything. I am so sorry. I really wish I could undo everything. I have failed as a human being. On the ferry back from the island, I posed this question to the investigator. You think he's sorry? No, absolutely not. With especially child killers, they do not stop until they're caught. That's a thrill kill. That's not a heat of the moment where somebody takes a bat or a gun and in the heat of the moment kill somebody. This was a thrill kill. People like that do not stop until they're caught. So had we not caught him, had Holly's remains floated out into the middle of the lake that were never discovered, he would have continued un until we did catch him. So absolutely, he's not, he's sorry he got caught, but he's not sorry he did it. Absolutely not. On the next podcast with Steve Ryan, we'll look at the murder of nine-year-old Cecilia Zhang, kidnapped for ransom from her bedroom in the middle of the night. I'm Austin Delaney.